Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Angie Walker, Global Head of Capital Markets Business Development at R3, the provider of private, scalable GLT platforms for regulated financial industries. Our topic is how traditional stock exchanges can reinvent themselves for an increasingly digital future. Angie, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Pleased to, pleased to join you and uh, delighted to be having this conversation. Now, stock exchanges, traditional stock exchanges. Uh, you, you have one client, um, uh, uh, SDX, who have chosen what might be called the innovator's dilemma approach, which is to build an entire uh, digital exchange alongside their traditional exchange uh, business. If I asked you what traditional stock exchanges can do to digitize their offerings without cannibalizing their uh, existing business, as I say, STX has taken one option, what would be your, your suggestion using your technology? How can you digitize and uh, without destroying your existing franchise? Yeah, so Dominic, just one point I'm going to make right at the beginning. We actually have more than one client going down that route, which is very interesting, but I will come to... Um, I will come to the differences between the way that SDX have approached it and, and perhaps the way other exchanges are approaching it mm-hmm. in, in terms of their innovation on, on, on DLT. Um, just to sort of just to set the scene, I think it's important to understand at a very high level um, what, a, what a traditional sort of um, uh, regional stock exchange typically does. I'm sure many of you already know they tend to list and trade instruments within their jurisdiction. So it's typically securitized instruments, so equities and equity derivatives and bonds, um, relating to typically um, uh, uh, enterprises or corporations within their jurisdiction. So there is a certain element of, um, of, of definition of their captive audience, if you like, and their and their assets that they're able to listen, list and trade, which is defined by where they are. What I mean by that is if you look at uh, SDX are a fantastic example of this. Um, they're obviously regulated and, and domiciled Switzerland. Um, so they are capturing, if you look at their parent six exchanges, uh, listing and trading um, equity, equity derivatives and bonds for the Swiss market, uh, which as you can imagine is an extremely lucrative and fast growing economy, but it's also relatively small. And so one of the problems with the traditional stock exchanges is they are a little bit trapped by their jurisdiction in the assets that they have the ability to list and trade. They also traditionally trade um, uh, a a window that's tied to their jurisdiction. So again, they might trade from 8 o'clock in the morning or 8.30 in the morning when the market opens to 4.30 in the afternoon. Um, And and that window is a relatively short window of about eight hours and there may be uh, gaps in between um, when they have periodic auctions or, or during the trading day when there's a break in some particular jurisdiction they do break at lunchtime. So they have a trading window that's relatively small and well-defined. And in terms of their membership, it tends to be domestic. There will be a few super regional and you might get a tiny handful of tier one global investment banks. So if you look at traditional stock exchange, you've got three dynamics in play here. You've got what are the assets that they have available within their geography to list and trade? That's the first limitation. What is their trading window? And typically it tends to be about eight hours, um, but it does vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And then the third one is who is their captive audience? And again, 
that's limited to the people who are, you know, regulated um, market participants within that jurisdiction, maybe a few super regional participants who trade that market as a member, and maybe a few of the global tier ones who also have chosen to take membership. So that's typically the dynamic that makes up a, a, a regional stock exchange. Now, one of the reasons why building a digital asset exchange is so incredibly compelling for regional stock exchanges, it changes all three of those dynamics. And so let's go through them one at a time because it's worth understanding each element of that. Number one, in terms of the assets that you listed and trade, becoming a digital asset exchange alongside the existing stock exchange uh, has no need to in any way cannibalize those existing assets. In fact, many of the instruments that you can list and trade can be wholly complementary to the assets that you list and trade on the primary market. So where, for example, on the primary markets, you're listing and trading publicly listed companies or derivatives of those equities or bonds associated with publicly listed companies, on the digital asset exchange sitting next door to it, you can start to trade things like um, uh, uh, real estate and infrastructure and, and private equity and um, other um, esoteric but institutional grade assets such as uh, precious metals or, or, or um, large and scale esoteric instruments that are very valuable um, such as ESG type funds and things like that. So there's a wide variety of asset types that you could list and trade as a digital asset exchange that are very different to the assets that you list and trade as a stock exchange, but in no way are in conflict or likely to cannibalize that existing business. So this gives you this infinite, effectively this infinite capacity um, to have this digital market alongside the existing market and to then choose what assets that you want to list and trade and in what order you want to bring them to the market. The second dynamic of the three is where does that leave you in terms of your membership? And as I said, if you look at an exchange such as six, I think they've got about 135 members um, globally who are trading members of the exchange. Um, and, a, and, a, and a large proportion of those are domestic uh, players who are institutional, uh, regulated institutions who are trading on the market as a member. If you think, imagine a digital asset exchange, irrespective of the jurisdiction in which it's, it's domiciled, its membership can genuinely be global. So, so even though... Uh, the primary market, uh, uh, the traditional stock exchange might have 130 members. There's actually nothing to stop the digital asset exchange in the case it would be SDX um, in Switzerland to have literally over the course of time thousands of members because they're not uh, tied to the geography of the assets which they are listing and trading. And so they're more likely to attract a truly global audience. And this is really important because it means that it massively opens the the window of opportunity to the target audience with which they might want to be able to encourage those participants to, to become members of that business network and participate in the trading of assets within that, within that environment and that, and that venue. Um, the third dynamic, which is the trading window, as I said, traditionally, we normally see trading windows of around eight hours a day, starting at around 8.30 in the morning, wrapping up at around 4.30 in the afternoon. Um, again, one of the massive benefits of a digital asset exchange is it's got a global trading window. So there is absolutely nothing to stop a digital asset exchange from trading 24 hours a day, six and a half, seven days a week. It's entirely at their discretion, obviously, um, uh, which it increases the trading window by as much as 400 percent. 
So if you add, and I'm not a particularly great mathematician, uh, but if you add the number of members, which is now global, to the range of assets, which is now infinite, to a trading window, which is now up to four times the size of a traditional stock exchange's trading window, that is a massive opportunity for revenue growth beyond that of a traditional stock exchange. And all of that is wholly feasible without in any way cannibalizing any of those existing instruments or, 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 or assets that are traded within that primary market today. Now, there is one other angle to this, which is very important. And that is if you actually look at the post-trade space, one of the ways in which we might start to see innovation, and we are seeing innovation within the existing stock exchange space globally, is that some of the stock exchanges are very focused on actually um, leveraging core, leveraging DLT to actually facilitate a transformation of their post-trade um, life cycle. And so actually anything that an existing stock exchange builds for the listing, trading and the settlement of assets outside of their primary market can then start to think about how they might segue the post-trade element of that infrastructure into their existing exchange infrastructure. So you, it's something of a sort of a, a two-for-one deal, really, that not only does it future-proof you in your ability to expand dramatically in the assets that you list and trade and the audience to which you make those assets available, but it also then allows you to start to, to reverse that technology into your existing legacy infrastructure to start to drive um, much greater time for settlement. So reducing from T plus two, for example, to T zero is wholly feasible, reducing risk, reducing reconciliation and, uh, and um, middle office uh, and post-trade uh, process uh, failures dramatically by having that sort of single version of the truth on the ledger. So there are some really significant uh, benefits to be had by, by going down this road. It doesn't have to be that you build from scratch, by the way, that, that, that those days are officially over and we've got lots of different ways in which we can achieve that end goal. Now you've explained very clearly how building a digital exchange enables you to attract new types of issuer, new types of asset class, new types of of investor without cannibalizing your, your traditional business. But if you look forward into the, into the future, and I don't know how far away this future is, there will, well, maybe, maybe this is the question, will there be some kind of convergence between the traditional and the, and the digital businesses? In other words, does that digital exchange eventually have to eat, if you like, the outstanding existing equity, debt, fund, any other derivatives business of the traditional exchange? You've alluded at the end of your remarks there to, to the fact that a bonus of doing this, of, of using Corda, is you're able to, to reinvent your, your post-trade functionality and kind of make the traditional exchanges post-trade functions more efficient. Um, is that the beginning of a process of, of convergence between these two ways of, of doing business? And so we look 5, 10, 20 years ahead, and we have a single stack, if you like, of uh, of digitized assets of all kinds being issued, traded, settled, custodied on a single platform and then through this vertical structure. Are we, I mean, my, my question is unfair in a way, but, but do you expect traditional and digital exchanges to merge operationally and functionally over time? I think it, I think it depends very much on the assets that they list and trade. And so if you look at a traditional stock exchange and if you look at the range of assets they list and trade, there is without a doubt a range of assets that are not suited to being executed on ledger. And what I mean by that, if you think about 
instruments that trade with very high frequency, um, such as things like FTSE 100 on the London Stock Exchange, where you've got a very, very large volume of trading um, going on during the course of the trading day. This is not a good use of the ledger. This is not what the ledger was intended for at this stage in its life. I'm not saying that over time that we won't enhance the performance of, of, um, of matching on the ledger, but, but as it stands today, and certainly in the near term, in the next three to five years, I wouldn't expect to see traditional matching engines evaporating and be repla being replaced with high frequency uh, digital matching on the ledger, to be perfectly honest. I don't think that's what we intended it for. Um, but for instruments, interestingly, so I think for the very high frequency instruments that trade very large volumes that are very latency sensitive, um, I don't think they're destined for uh, decentralized matching on the ledger near term. Now, what I do think is really interesting, and I think there are many regional stock exchanges thinking along these lines, which it, um, is if you look at some of the instruments that are, that are currently facilitated through lit order books so uh, limit order books traditional limit order books um, that are very or moderately and very illiquid uh, either because they're in that sort of small cap zone or because they themselves are fairly lumpy in the way that they're priced I do think there's a really or they're esoteric in nature um, I do think there's a very interesting dynamic which is that when you digitize an existing instrument and then you fractionalize it what you actually do by fractionalizing it is you increase its liquidity because you're able to move instead of it being big and lumpy and only moving in large units if you start to cut it down into much smaller units um, it means that you start to improve the liquidity because you're able to move fractions of that asset um, and sell fractions of it rather than having to wait for people to acquire large units um, in their in their entirety so by Certainly in areas like the small cap markets and in that instruments are traditionally very illiquid um, or very esoteric in nature. So certainly in areas of the bond market and small cap markets, um, I do think there's an opportunity for where uh, digitization of the asset and then the subsequent fractionalization of that asset gives us the ability to democratize it, spread its um, access to a much broader institutional audience. And so I do think it will enhance the liquidity of instruments that are traditionally have been relatively illiquid. Um, and that may well emerge over time where you see exchanges looking at some of their more illiquid instruments and using the ledger and, uh, and digitization of those through um, DLT as a means of making them more frequently traded, more, more accessible. Right, so the central limit order book is far from dead, at least in the, in the near future, but you can- Definitely not reach into new asset classes and create liquidity in them through techniques like fractalization. Now, I'm wondering how powerful this technology is and whether this is more true of, uh, I, I don't know, one of these domestic or regional exchanges you've referred to, which maybe doesn't have a huge legacy of, of clients or huge technological legacies. How powerful is the technology? Can you, can you envisage one of those relative today, what is a relatively minor regional or domestic exchange actually becoming a massive global force through the power of this digital technology alone. How powerful is it? Yeah, so the, I mean, the whole point of DLT is that it, it, is, it is distributed in its very nature. It has no boundaries on a global basis. Um, it has the ability to give any, any 
uh, business network operator, and I'm referring to business network operators within institution, institutional regulated capital markets, right? I'm not talking about any other industry, which I have no experience of. But it, it, fundamentally, it doesn't discriminate against the size of the organization, which is has made the decision to empower itself with the technology. So it doesn't matter whether you're a tiny um, regional stock exchange with, you know, 100 assets and, and 20 members, or whether you're a global, um, you know, multi-asset exchange with, you know, a million instruments and 500 members. It doesn't discriminate in that way, which is really important because I, it's a bit of a David and Goliath moment in the sense that an SDX is a fantastic example of this, okay? If you look at their traditional client base, it's very, very heavily domiciled towards Switzerland and, 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 and Northern European membership. Um, they have the capacity to be truly global. If the instruments that they choose to list and trade on SDX are instruments that are of interest to a global investment community within the institutional world, they will build a global community of members. This is very important. The technology is, is, is a, in a way, the technology is empowering them to be able to be a global player. So it's very important. And they're in complete control of that. It's their business network. They, they, they have complete control of that. Now, what's interesting is if you start to look at some of the innovation we've done with the likes of NASDAQ, the NASDAQ Technology Group, they have built um, a full uh, front-to-back digital asset exchange on Corda. Um, we're very proud of what they've done. And so uh, although SDX themselves chose to go down the route of building their entire infrastructure from scratch and what they've built is incredibly impressive and is transformational for the industry. I mean, we have now a full CSD function on the ledger, front to back CSD capability on the ledger. So what they've done is, is truly transformational, but there is no need to do that from scratch. When you look at what NASDAQ technology have done with their NDAS, NASDAQ Digital Asset Suite, they have actually built the entire front to back uh, from issuance all the way through to settlement and a full capability with a in full integration into their matching engine um, through their financial framework um, in a single managed service offering. So any exchange that wants to become a digital asset exchange, but doesn't necessarily want to have to build that entire infrastructure from scratch can go to uh, NASDAQ Technology Group and who are completely independent, but owned by the same parent as NASDAQ Exchange Group, of course, and basically have a managed service offering that would bring them out of the box as a digital asset exchange and digital CSD day one. So the good news is for anybody wanting to go on that journey, the reasons for doing so are very compelling in many different ways, not just in terms of your asset class coverage, but your client base and your trading window. These are all very material changes to where you are today. Um, the very good news is, of course, you don't have to do that by building from scratch anymore, uh, which is the journey that SDX went on because they started three years ago. So it is a phenomenal opportunity to become a truly global player if they wish to do so. And is the same true of um, genuine startups? You're working, for example, with Archax. Um, do they have the same opportunity to become truly global? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, the technology doesn't discriminate between somebody innovating on, on DLT that's a pre-existing exchange or FMI group, or somebody innovating on Corda who is a startup, subject to them having the appropriate licensing as, a, as an MTF or as a regulated exchange or as a CSD. Um, they have the same power and capacity to leverage the technology as anybody else. 
So this is another thing about this is, I mean, it is a it is a true leveler in the sense that the technology is not, it doesn't discriminate positively or negatively against the people that leverage it. So our chats is a fantastic example of a startup that has, as you well know, is now acquired and is the first ever digital asset exchange to acquire an M MTF license with the FCA. We're very proud of having them as a, as a client of our free. Uh, they are building a digital asset exchange. They're very well advanced with that. They're using a traditional matching engine, which is being provided by the Aquis um, technology arm, which is, which is a very well established MTF and it's an exchange in its own right. Um, and they are building out a truly global function. They are also um, in the process of becoming a licensed CSD as well. So they are innovating in exactly the same way that, it, that SIX did with the birth of SDX three years ago. And I have no reason to believe that they won't be any less or more successful than SDX because at the end of the day, although they don't have the benefit of 136 existing members, um, they still have the same appetite for global asset coverage, global trading windows and the global uh, 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 participant base. So they have the same subject from having the appropriate financial and regu regulatory backing. They have the same opportunity as anybody else who is effectively innovating in the space. So if I've understood you correctly, we're going to have quite a complex, potentially fragmented uh, marketplace going forward for, for issuance and yeah. trading for exchanges. Now, that um, if that's going to work to everybody's benefit, and I mean the exchanges benefit as well as that of the issuers and investors, there's going to need to be interoperability between the traditional with digital, the traditional and the and the purely digital exchanges. Now, how hard is that to achieve at the, the issuance and, and, and trading level? I mean, to put the question plainly, um, how easy is it if you're on Corda, how easy is it to link your Corda platform to a traditional platform? Like like in London, you could, could you just hook it up to Turquoise and, and the London Stock Exchange without difficulty? So it's, it's an interesting question. And actually, these, these are questions that are being asked right now as we speak <laughs> so it's quite interesting that you raise that um yes i mean in terms of existing infrastructures uh i mean corda is already integrated a really good example of that and, and i'm not trying to uh not answer the turquoise question probably i'd rather ask robert barnes that question because he's got some very strong and very passionate views about direction of travel but um but if you actually look at a really good example it would be hqlx so if you look at where hqlx is they were one of the very first cord apps to go live in capital markets so very quickly, high quality liquid assets that traditionally sit in baskets, they're baskets of collateral. So it might be things like uh, short dated treasury bonds or, 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 or liquid um, uh, equities or even fiat. But these baskets of high quality liquid assets, um, we've built a, a core app that's now live. It's got quite a, lot of, a large number of the tier one collateral upgrade, downgrade um, uh, 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 um, participants actually using the core app. It sits wedged between, and I'm not technical, forgive me, it sits wedged between the Eurex repo market and both um, Clearstream and Euroclear, who are acting as the digital custodians to the underlying baskets. So what we're basically doing is we're lodging these traditional baskets of collateral with the digital custodians, which is in this case the two ICSDs. Um, they are then integrated into the ledger. The ledger is, is creating a, a, a tokenized or a digital collateral receipt in a uh, that points back to the underlying. And those digital collateral receipts are being traded like any other instrument would be on a repo market on Eurex. 
So there's a really beautiful example. And I love HPLX because it is this wonderful example of how ZLT and Corda can interoperate with the existing world. And that all happens completely seamlessly to the end participants. So the participants sitting on the Eurex repo market on F7, interacting and, and buying and selling, uh, uh, well, actually at the moment they're doing uh, delivery versus delivery, but they will eventually do delivery versus payments, uh, exchanging these baskets of securities, are doing all of this and, and, and the whole integration of the ledger is completely seamless. And what it's allowing us to do is move collateral instantaneously, which we simply could not have done before. And at a fraction of the cost that you would have done if you'd have actually had to have moved the uh, ownership of the underlying assets themselves. So that's a really good example of where we've used the ledger to create a new instrument type, but also to integrate between the ledger itself and the trading venue. So I think um, I think your question about turquoise and what could we, we be doing with our friends at London Stock Exchange who are you know, uh, partners of R3 and, uh, and are innovating on Corda. I think, you know, watch this space. I think there's some really exciting things ahead for us. Now, you, you've described very clearly, and I can see how this works, that, that you can create through Corda a kind of networked uh, front-to-back, end-to-end, uh, I suppose, securities, issuance, trading, settlement, custody. Uh, well, it's a network, isn't it, which spans everything from uh, from the issuance and trading process through the collateral management, through the financing, through the settlement, through the custody. You've got ICSDs, you've got custodian banks, you've got exchanges, and you've got collateral managers like HQLAX all on this, this network and the assets uh, and, the, and the cash can can move freely between different members of that network. But well, they're the networks of networks, Dominic. So if you imagine they're all networks in their own right, so HQLAX is a network, SDX is a network, but what you end up with is a network of networks and this ability, as you say, for assets and cash to flow mm -hmm. freely between the various business networks um, in which they were either incepted or in which they were represented either as a part of the primary market or as part of the secondary or post-trade right. market. But you're absolutely right. It is feasible and we're not very far away from having bonds issued uh, now that we're getting dematerialization of the, of the, of the bond markets we could now start to see bonds issued on the ledger that then become bonds that are sitting within the baskets that are then traded on HQLX. So it starts to become a self-fulfilling self prophecy between the various business networks themselves. Mm -hmm. But what about the, uh, the, the networks and networks which are not on, on core? Yeah. How do you plug core into networks and networks which are not on your basic technology? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, again, a fantastic question. And, and, and actually what we're seeing, again, is a very interesting trend. And a lot of these things, you don't always see them. They emerge as trends, don't they? So you wouldn't necessarily be able to predict, although I think probably Richard Gendelbrand predicts things about at least three to five years ahead of everybody else at the moment. But our CTO seems to have this incredible ability to see it before we do. But the reality is, if you look at what's happening in, say, the DeFi world, um, uh, uh, there's a lot of issuance of a, of a broad range of very interesting and I talk about interesting in, 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 with respect to institutional investment, right? There's a lot of assets being issued on um, Ethereum. And there, is, and there are assets that are of significant interest to institutional investors. Now, how do we get to a point where we can um, embrace those assets and, and bring them into the world of, say, Corda? And why would, and then why would people want to do that? And I think there's a, a pattern emerging where people recognize that if you want widespread uh, reach when it comes to the issuance of an asset. If you want to be able to 
reach a very, very broad community, then that's really where public blockchains come into their own, as you well know. They're very different from private permissions, um, very sort of very secure and heavily locked down ledgers like Corner, where we we only let access assistance come onto the ledger who we know and, and who we can validate. Um, but we recognize that blockchains has a phenomenal capacity to reach an incredibly broad audience. And where that's most powerful is in the perhaps in the issuance, in the asset discovery and the issuance process. And so what we're seeing is an increasing trend, not just with existing quarter business networks like SDX, but also with um, new um, projects that are in flight at the moment where they want to issue on Ethereum or they want to receive and take in assets that have been issued on Ethereum because they themselves want to offer uh, asset discovery and secondary market trading of those assets through a corda-based business network. So, and then the reason that people want to do that is once the asset has actually been issued. So if you think about um, infrastructure, real estate, ESG, maybe type instruments, um, um, then if we can take those instruments and we can bring them onto the ledger, the reason people want to use a private permission ledger once the asset has been issued is because they have to have, they need to have uh, an immutable record. They need to know definitively who the asset is owned by. They need to have a complete record of the transfer of ownership of the asset. They need to be able to know the asset is safe. They need to move the asset from the asset owner to the asset investor with complete certainty and integrity and mutability of that life cycle. And they need that to all happen in a relatively private setting. So something which you put into the public domain in order to issue it and to get the primary issuance process kicked off, um, once that asset actually is, has been invested in, there's quite a lot of momentum around wanting then to wrap your arms around it and, and have its life cycle and any subsequent transfer of ownership occur in a very secure and private setting. And I do think this will be the place where our worlds will come together, where, where we'll recognize the value of the public blockchain and the private ledger coming together. And in fact, a lot of the work we're doing strategically in R3, and we've always worked very hard to ensure interoperability from the very outset, from the very beginning when we first designed mm -hmm. Corda, we always designed it with interoperability in mind. But at the moment, of course, we've got interoperability now between different Corda business networks. We've already done that. Our focus at the moment is very much around that interoperability between public blockchains and the private ledger, because that's a trend that is fast emerging. We want to be able to onboard those assets or at least represent those assets on the ledger in a private setting and be able to facilitate the life cycle in a way that's very secure and immutable and private and safe for institutional investors. And this is a really interesting trend that's emerging and it's at the top of our agenda from a strategic product perspective at the moment. So just to make sure I've understood what you've been, you've been saying, if I'm a, a, a regulated financial institution, sure, I want to buy equity and debt, and I quite like doing that through, the, in these, through these private permission networks, the type that you, you're building with, with your exchange and uh, collateral management and CSD clients. I'm, I feel comfortable in that world. But I also would like to buy a bit of cryptocurrency, like a bit of Bitcoin, a bit of Ether. I might also like to, to access um, some of those tokens on, on DeFi um, platforms like, like Uniswap. Are you, are you describing a world in which, as a regulated financial institution, I'm going to be able to do that? I'm going to be able to buy crypto on Coinbase, and I'm going to be able to buy utility tokens through 
through Uniswap. Is that is that something you I can do now, or is this something which you're evolving and working on for the short term or long term future? So, so set aside the asset class because um, Corda doesn't discriminate positively or negatively um, around the asset class itself. Um, think about the ledger as the, as the super highway. So we're talking about the super highway, not the car. Okay. So the analogy I make is the asset is the car, the ledger is the super highway. Um, so Corda um, is not discriminating about which cars drive down its super highway. It's entirely up to our institutional clients, because obviously I'm focused around capital markets and institutional clients who are regulated, what asset types they want to uh, represent, tokenize, manage the life cycle of, move value in relation to, or move ownership in relation to on the ledger. Okay. Um, however, obviously they're limited by what they're allowed to um, trade as regulated institutions. So I do see a world where we may well see um, assets that are derived, whether that's um, whether that's cryptocurrencies or whether that's other tokenized assets, um, particularly in areas such as I talked about real estate and infrastructure and, and ESG type instruments. I do see a world where we will see a broad spectrum of assets that have been incepted on a public blockchain, and that may well include um, digitized uh, cryptocurrencies um, that will need to be represented on a private ledger like Corda, and whether we actually lock those assets down and then we burn a new token that represents them on Corda, or whether we actually find a, a very elaborate but safe way of wrapping our arms around them in order to onboard them, and I'm not technical, onto Corda, that's yet to be decided. But what is very evident and what we're very focused on is the fact that our customers want us to be able to interoperate with public blockchains and they want it in a way that does allow us to be able to continue a life cycle that has started somewhere else. So I think I'll leave it to the clever people to work out how they're going to do that. Um, uh, but I think we do need to be able to do that. And it's very important that we should allow assets and cash to be able to flow in both directions. And I don't think that's a million miles away. I think technically we've been thinking about that for a very long time. And it's always been a part of the plan that we would interoperate both corder to corder, but also corder to public blockchain. And, and our focus at the moment is on Ethereum and one or two other of the public chains right now. But over the course of time, we, we need to be, and we will be driven by our customers in deciding what other public blockchains we need to be worrying about in terms of making sure that integration is seamless. Your customers will expect you to enable them to do that safely and safely in yes. terms of the counterparty is who they say they are and the asset is where they say it is. So um, you've, you've touched on um, on this technology enabling uh, um, investors and issuers to, to broader asset classes, if you like, um, investors can access. Now, there are lots of asset classes out there which um, are not particularly new, but do not yet benefit from uh, from being traded on exchanges. I'm thinking here of mutual funds, for example. I know you're working with, with fund admin chain who wants to tokenize uh, the mutual fund market and bring some of those benefits of, of exchange trading to it, and exchange issuance as well, I might say. Uh, and similarly with the with the, the money markets um, where you're working with, with Instamatch. So this technology is being, is being brought through your client bases to asset classes which haven't traditionally benefited 
from it. Do you do you think those two instances I've cited are kind of exceptions, or do you see this as a massive opportunity to bring existing asset classes onto Corda and thereby add liquidity and uh, indeed change the whole nature of how those markets operate? I think it's a tremendous opportunity. And actually, the best example I would cite um, that's actually probably more advanced in its adoption on the ledger and has seen virtually no change in the last 35 years is the bond market. So I think the bond market's a really good example. And I mean, I'm, I'm not just uh, talking about the syndicated end of the bond market. I'm talking about the whole uh, broad spectrum of assets or classes that sit within the debt market today right down to commercial paper with a tremendous amount of work going into um, us building out the integration of the workflow for commercial paper from inception to end of life and all the way through you know, uh, uh, to medium term notes and all the way across to syndicated um, uh, sort of supernational sovereign agency debt. There are a number of applications that have already been built on Corda that are either going live or are live that basically take the bond, uh, create a smart bond. So what I mean by that is not just representing the attributes of the bond, you know, it's the term, it's either the type of bond, the value, the coupon payment, not just, not just the attributes of the bond, but also representing the sort of the logic around the, the uh, ob obligations of that instrument over its life. So, you know, when have interest payments got to be made, um, what uh, corporate actions need to be performed associated with that particular securitized instrument. And what we're seeing is that um, a number, of, a large number of organizations are putting the whole life cycle onto Corda, onto the ledger, and some really good examples of Corda apps. And the reason this is very important is if you go right to the bottom end of the, of the, of the debt market for CP, um, we did a very interesting experiment with a number of banks back in 2018 at a time when the CP market was very much in decline because the cost of, uh, uh, of issuing and servicing the CP market from a bank perspective was basically underwater. Most banks were not even able to break even on servicing the requirements of their customers with respect to issuing commercial paper. And the reason that that was so uh, worrying is it meant that a lot of the banks who historically were big issuers of commercial paper pulled out of that market which left a lot of organizations forced to the streets for their short-term borrowing. Now that's really painful and really um, a really expensive exercise. What we've been able to do through the use of Corda is to build a full front-to-back commercial paper platform. So basically it manages that whole life cycle on the ledger. It allows them to issue, to, uh, to settle, and to manage the life cycle and the ownership of that commercial paper on the ledger. And the reason that's so incredibly important is it allows commercial paper to be viable again. So we are starting to see almost the rebirth of commercial paper um, across some of the banks that were forced to pull out because they just couldn't justify it. And why that's very important, particularly in a COVID world, is that the need for short-term borrowing and the need for commercial paper has gone up exponentially in the last two years. And therefore, the need for the banks to be able to start servicing it again has gone up dramatically. So perhaps to be able to offer these banks the ability to do this in a way that's financially viable is incredibly important. So bonds are a really good example. And if, even if you go to the other end of the bond market, to the sovereign agency debt end of the bond market, where we've got fantastic core apps like Agora that's managing, creating a smart bond, managing all of the actions and the events associated with that bond on the ledger, driven from the ledger, the impact that has on the cost of 
managing a bond to a syndicating bank over its life cycle um, is very significant. So I think the bond market for me is the one that is the most transformative near term. And in the words of Charlie Berman, who's the founder of Agra, you know, in a market he worked in for the whole of his professional life, for 35 years, he never saw a single change in that market. And we are about to see a significant transformation of that market through the use of DLT. So I think there's some really interesting asset classes that either because they're very um, inefficient or they're very illiquid or they're very costly to service, the loans market is another fantastic candidate for this. I do think you'll see significant DLT adoption as a, as a means of transforming those markets. I have one last question for you, Ajit. It arises out of what you've been saying about the bond markets and the commercial paper markets, about putting the entire life cycle of these assets uh, onto, the, onto the ledger. Now, why does it make sense to put every possible service, and I'm referring here to issuance, trading, uh, settlement, asset servicing, in other words, the income collection, the corporate actions, and, and so on, the custody, um, the payments even, why does it make sense to put all these onto the same technology platform when historically these various functions have been performed by separate entities? What's partly, I suppose, to avoid conflicts of interest, what has, what has changed that means it now makes sense morally, I suppose, as well as economically, to put all these different functions onto the same technology platform? That's quite a broad question, Dominic. That's quite a big question. It, I guess the only way I could answer that in the time we've got available is to say, if you break it into the three phases, I'm going to be really crude and break it into the three phases. So think about primary issuance, secondary market trading, and then the post-trade administration of an asset like a bond. Um, in the primary markets, um, again, I don't come from the bond market. I come from equities. Uh, from a life where we were focused around um, equity trading in the front office. Um, but in the bond market, my understanding is that the primary issuance process is very, very labor intensive, particularly in the syndicated bond market. And then once that bond has been issued, within the first few days of it being issued, um, the ownership of that bond very rarely changes hands in the traditional market. And, and the reasons for that are, it's very difficult to find it. That's the first thing. Even if you can find it, they actually can be very difficult to price because um, the data that you need to try to understand the value of that bond is quite difficult to price in, in some instances. And so bonds beyond the primary issuance quite often don't change hands at all beyond that eighth, eighth or ninth day, particularly in the syndicated market, my understanding is. Um, and then even if you do want to buy the bond, unless it's being traded through a trading venue, uh, like a sort of a trade web, um, then it's actually quite expensive to facilitate the transfer of ownership. Now, on the ledger, the, the beauty of the ledger is the minute the bond is issued, and obviously this is subject to legislation, not all types of debt instruments are fully dematerialized at the moment. So there, there is a period of time during which we will live in this hybrid world where the underlying documentation and legal prose still sits in a paper contractual form. Um, but for the assets that have been dematerialized and are legislative through legislation are now recognized as being truly digital um, then for their entire life cycle once they've been issued um, the ability to discover those assets beyond the primary market becomes far greater because for any asset that wants to be discovered for any owner of an asset that wants to be recognized then for any future investor of that asset within the secondary market the journey to finding the asset 
is far easier because if it exists on the ledger, then your ability, and as long as it wants to be found, of course, then your ability to find a particular profile of bond becomes far more up to far, far more likely, if you like. And there are a number of core dApps being built at the moment that are one in particular I can think of that's very focused on facilitating this pre-secondary market asset discovery and price discovery, and then the flow down into the secondary markets. If you look at the great work that LedgerEdge have been doing, um, they have really worked very hard from a investor's perspective to allow for the searching of these assets and for the pre-secondary market price and asset discovery to be much more optimized through the use of the ledger. Um, obviously, in secondary markets, um, the ledger can be used either directly to trade on, say, an RFQ type basis, or we can, or we can seamlessly integrate into um, markets that are trading bonds on a secondary market basis. But then once you get to the post-trade life cycle and the asset servicing, we're talking about here where we've collapsed the whole life cycle onto the ledger. So there's nothing to stop you settling T0. I mean, literally, you can settle atomically on the ledger. You can eliminate or you could massively reduce settlement risk. You can significantly reduce the settlement cost. You can think about things like using the collateral because these assets become movable once they're on the ledger. You can then start to think about how do I use those as forms of collateral for other trading activities because they are now in a form where you where you can move them and you can use them to for other for other means as a form of collateral for other trading activities. So there's a very broad spectrum of things that happen that are beneficial if you start to drive the entire life cycle. And even at the most basic level, you think about things like corporate actions, which historically have been very, very time consuming, very costly, very onerous in terms of remembering if you're managing a portfolio of bonds, every single one of those bonds is going to have a set of obligations around corporate actions. If you do that manually, that is a significant overhead. And that's what we've been doing pretty much through the use of spreadsheets for the last 35 years. By putting that information on the ledger, by creating a, a truly smart bond that is not just a representation of the instrument, but is also representing the, the logic of the obligations of the asset, we can now automate all of these obligations um, during the, the servicing of the asset over time. So these, there are some very material benefits of driving the life cycle of that asset from the ledger across its entire life. And, and, and I'm just talking about one asset class. This, this is relevant across many asset classes. So we get efficiency gains across the primary market, the secondary market, post-trade, asset servicing, and we don't lose anything from... You're not, you're not losing anything. You're, you're servicing the capabilities and you're servicing the asset, but in a very much more efficient very much more timely, uh, much more cost efficient and, and a lower risk situation. And in doing that, you're also enhancing its liquidity and its discovery at the same time. Right. Angie Walker, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. No problem, thank you, pleasure to be there.